submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his Savior, and his and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your masters, your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The word of the Lord. Good morning to you. Fun stuff, right? Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, not one of my favorite passages. Ephesians 5, 22 is a life verse for me, one of the first verses that I memorized. And continually remind Jennifer of, which I get to do in the next service, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Now, we chuckle a little bit, right? And in part, that's because it's connected to the reality that the church has often taken this section of Paul's writing and zoomed in on instructions to wives. And sadly, the evangelical church has often used it in a very abusive fashion to, uh, to put down uh, women in the church, and particularly in homes where in traditional uh, conservative Christian denominations... Spousal abuse tends to uh, be a rather high and frequent phenomenon. Why would that be the case? Does Paul really intend that we would read this beginning of uh, Ephesians, of, of our passage this morning, and go out and make sure that our wives are submitting to us? What really is Paul after? This is one of those passages that, uh, in order to understand the details, we have to understand the big picture. 
And in order to understand the, the big picture, I want to give you three aspects. And realize that if you don't, if you miss the forest for the trees in this passage, you end up in a very bad place. So we have to make sure that we have a notion of the forest as a whole before we're going to consider some of the trees. All right? So in terms of the big picture, let me point three things out to you. Number one, in verse 21... Uh, Paul is going to write, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, Paul is calling the church as a whole, everyone in the church, to submit to one another. Now this comes at the end of a long exhortation in which, if we back up just a little bit, Paul has said, uh, Jesus is victorious because Jew and Gentile have been brought together. And Jew and Gentile never would have been brought together unless Jesus actually was God in the flesh and died and rose from the dead. That's the only thing powerful enough to bring Jew and Gentile together. And so he moves into instructions, okay? Since Jew and Gentile have been brought together to forge one new man, he starts to give instructions to the church on what they should look like. And just before our passage, he gets into that the church should not be drunk with wine, that that's a, uh, a mimicking of being filled. Instead, you should be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, various things happen right, to make us the community that Christ has intended for us to be. But in verse 21, what Paul is saying is one of the things that happens is that we submit to one another. Now, on the one hand, that's an, what we would call an oxymoronic statement. right? Imagine you bump into somebody at church and the one person, you know, Ted says, you know, I think we should get blue carpet. And Roger says, well, I think we should get red carpet. And then Ted says, well, I submit to you, let's get red carpet. But Roger says, no, I submit to you, let's get blue carpet. Right? And where are you? You're, you're lost. You're in this helpless spiral of submitting to one another. Of course, that's not what Paul means. Right? Paul is describing a community. He's envisioning a community where out of love and sacrifice, we promote one another's health and integrity and growth in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this, all right, this is the, uh, it's kind of the, the Roman numeral one. Submit to one another. Right? After this, Paul is going to invest in the notion of submitting as it affects the household. Right? But all of what he's going to say in the passage we're considering today comes under right, this, this heading. Submit to one another uh, out of fear of Christ or out of reverence for Christ. Right? So number one, Paul's instruction is that the whole church should be submitting to each other. And out of this, we're going to work out some details. Number two, what Paul is doing as he then begins to work this out is he's adopting a very common framework for thinking in the ancient world. All right, what does Paul do? He goes through husbands and wives, and then through parents and children, and then through slaves and masters. Those three relationships are called the household code or the, the tables of household duties. And in other words, in the ancient world, what philosophers uh, and rulers thought was that the house is the basic building block of society. If your houses are run well, then all of society will be run well. If your houses are run poorly, then all of society will be run poorly. In some ways, it's not bad counsel that perhaps we should heed from the ancient world. But as they're thinking through this and thinking about the household... They broke it down according to the three power structures that existed in the household, right? Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. Those are your three power structures in the household. So as Paul goes into this, what Paul is doing, he's not coming up with something new. This is incredibly widespread. It has been around for hundreds of years by the time of Paul, 
Right? And he is, what he's doing is redefining it or reinterpreting something that is already preexistent in uh, or through the lens of Christ. That's number two. Number three is that uh, there's a translation note that we have to make, and it's this. If you look at verse 21, it says that we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word reverence there is it's rendered in the ESV, and if you have a similar English translation, it will be rendered similarly. It's probably not uh, the best translation. According to most commentators, it's not really being honest with what Paul has written. In the Greek, Paul has written uh, the word phobos, which is the word for fear. Now, in, uh, in verse 21, Paul says, Therefore, out of the fear of Christ, we're to submit to one another. And in verse 33, when he talks about wives respecting their husbands, respect there, in verse 33, is also the word phobos or fear. It's actually saying, out of fear of your husbands, you should submit. Now, you may get a sense of, wow, I might change that to reverence too. What in the world is Paul talking about? That out of fear, we submit to one another. Out of fear of our husbands, we submit. That's kind of a scary notion, which has led most English translations to doctor a bit. And it's one of the only places where Paul, or anywhere in the New Testament, really talks about the fear of Christ. So we're going to have to do business with that. Right? We'll come back to it. But that's an important note as we start out. All right. So forest. Big picture if you're with me so far. Right? Number one, verse 21, is guiding what's coming afterwards. Submitting is a command to the entire church that we would be doing one unto another. And then Paul's going to unpack that as he applies it to the household code. And that's number two. Paul isn't inventing a household code. He's, he's operating with something that's existent, that informed Ephesian society, and he's redefining it through the lens of Christ. And one of the things I want you to note as we go through is when he goes into each of those power relationships, he's going to focus on the more powerful person. The radical thing he has to say is applied to the more powerful person in each of those power relationships. And number three, in verse 21 and verse 33, it should be fear, not uh, reverence and not respect. And we're going to have to ask why that is the case uh, as we come back around. All right. There's the forest. Let's consider some of the trees. Husbands and wives. Of course, Paul starts with wives because he knows that's where the real problem lies. We jest, but that we all know how often this has been read that way. So in verses 22 through 23, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, Paul's drawing a strong analogy that in the household, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Uh, a word of caution, don't. It's an analogy that is intended to, uh, to support and to advocate. Paul is affirming the existent household code. Right? But you can take it too far. Right? No one argues that Paul is actually saying that the husband is the Savior of the wife, as he says of Christ in relationship to the church. So we should read that with a degree of uh, caution, so to speak. Now, as I indicated earlier, Paul really is affirming nothing new, right? To say that wives should submit to husbands in the first century is essentially to say that fish live in water. For thousands of years, wives have submitted to their husbands. And as we look at the ancient world, uh, women... By and large, this is changing a little bit, 
And this is one of the challenging things about reading a letter, Paul's letter to anybody, but particularly to the Ephesians. We're constantly wondering, what exactly is happening in the church that causes Paul to write these things? And we don't actually have a definitive answer to that question. But we can take some uh, measurements, some, uh, some depth markings, so to speak, from the culture that we know existed at the time. And so in terms of uh, how women were viewed, one writer said women were the worst plague Zeus made. Another said the two best days in a woman's life are when someone marries her and when he carries her dead body to the grave. In Judaism, women were not counted in the quorum needed for a synagogue and were ritually unclean during menstruation. One rabbi advised, do not talk much with a woman. Another added, not even with one's wife. Now, in terms of women in Greek society at large, there's a source from Demosthenes in which uh, it says, he describes the role of women, plural, in the life of men in the ancient world. We have courtesans for our pleasure, prostitutes, remember boys and girls, that's someone who sells their kisses, for uh, young, or young female slaves for daily physical use, wives to bring up legitimate children, and to be faithful stewards in household matters. And two famous rabbis in, uh, in the early 2nd century uh, taught that every man, every day, should pray, uh, thank God for three blessings. And the prayer went, I thank the Lord that, the, that he did not make me a Gentile, a woman, or a boar. So, what depth marking are we taking? Women were not considered equal in any fashion. They were second-class citizens. They were often looked upon simply as carrying out a function on behalf of men. That was the role of women. So for Paul to say, women, submit to your husbands. Okay. Right? Now he is redefining that in a way through the lens of Christ that actually gives the wife the ability to think about this in a new way. Not simply being a second-class citizen, but oh, that, that God can work in the midst of this and that there is an intentional parallel on God's part to the headship of Christ. But after Paul affirms the household code, right? he says, yes, this is right, Paul spends far more time and more energy in redefining the power relationship. Right? After affirming that wives need to submit to their husbands, he goes on to say something that's exceptionally radical to husbands. And this is where we see the cross inverting the very power structure, the very household code of the first century. And this, if this is Paul's priority... It should be our priority as well in understanding it. Sadly, it has not been historically. But let's consider husbands. Verse 25, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? It's a pretty high bar. Do you lay down your life as Christ has laid down his life for the church? No. You don't. You love your wife because you expect some business time at the end of the day. You love your wife because you need someone to make sure that you have a legacy. You love your wife because you need someone to take care of the things at home that you don't want to take care of. Who was saying, yes, I love my wife as Christ loved the church? What a ridiculous calling. Why would Jesus love the church in such a way that he would give himself up for her? Look at verses 26 and 28 where Paul goes out of his way to state uh, not only that Christ has laid down his life for the church, but the purpose in laying down his life for the church that we as husbands might be informed. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus lays down his life so that the church might be sanctified. She might be holy and set apart for God's purposes. Husbands, are you laying down your your life for your wife, not for just any undefined purpose, but to actually improve and increase her holiness, to help her to be set apart for the purposes of Christ? What would that even look like? Uh, as I was thinking about the sermon, part of me wanted to find, I started out thinking, oh, I need some sensational story, right, of this husband who just throws himself down on behalf of his wife. And uh, somebody who was also looking for me actually found a story of a veteran who was in two tours of Iraq. In the second tour of Iraq, he uh, st- was blown up by an IED and affected by a subsequent blast and became crippled. And he was... Um, Uh, in a parade at home for disabled veterans and a train crashes into the parade and his last act is shoving his wife out of the way before he's hit by the train what a what in one sense what a powerful picture of laying one's life down uh, so that one's wife might thrive but i don't think the sensational is what paul is after at all and I don't think the sensational is what we need to focus on. And I don't think the sensational really, over time, is what produces real and deep holiness. That's produced by the mundane, by faithfulness in the small things, by faithfulness instead of coming home and feeling, husband, that you need to check out. And surely your family and wife will be better off if you're allowed 45 minutes of killing zombies. Instead saying, wife, how is your day and how can I help you? And how can I remedy the stress that exists here? Or instead of turning on the game, asking your wife uh, how her heart is. And if she's had time to read the word and to pray. Or to encourage her in that, to call her to it. Oh, you've neglected this? Let me help you make it happen. Instead of making sure that you have time with the guys, have you invested equal measure in making sure that your wife has time with the girls? that she might be built up in the same kind of fellowship that you would be eager to pursue. This is the kind of self-sacrifice, the laying down of one's life in small and mundane ways, it may even seem trivial, that actually cultivate holiness over time. Paul Settle was an old minister within our presbytery. He retired years ago and Uh, I was coming in, actually, just as he was retiring, and he had become the pastor at large, which means he's the pastor of the pastors in the presbytery. And his wife had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and was ailing. And uh, we were asking, you know, what are you going to do, and how are you navigating this? And he said, yeah, I'm so excited to be moving into the facility with her. And Paul was very healthy and of complete right mind. But he said, he said, my wife has taken such good care of me for so many years that I couldn't imagine a higher calling or a greater privilege than to care for her as she ails with Alzheimer's. I thought that, that's a pretty good picture of entering into something that might feel utterly futile and pointless, right? But that demonstrates a husband's heart to lay down his, his uh, life on behalf of his wife. And so what you need to know here is, yes, Paul is upholding the household code. Yes, there is a sense in which women are expected to submit to their husbands. 
But husbands, if you are loving your wife like Christ loved the church, is she going to struggle with submitting to you when you don't agree? Suddenly that becomes a very relativized and seemingly almost inconsequential aspect to married life if you are actually loving her the way that you're called to love her. Now, certain questions arise inevitably because it begins with both. Some of you have spent most of the time we've, we've spent on the sermon trying to excuse yourself, right? A number of you are like, yes, but. But my wife just doesn't respect me, so I don't have to love her like Christ loved the church. Or on the other side, yeah, you know, uh, I don't have to respect my husband because he doesn't love me like Christ loved the church. And so we start into this spiral of excusing ourselves from doing what we're called to do, which, of course, just goes, that spiral goes nowhere but down. And so as we excuse ourselves and are frustrated by one another's lack of faithfulness, Zach said something profound last week, which uh, if you missed it, you missed something great, which was a willing sacrifice is the only thing that defeats sin. A willing sacrifice is the only thing that defeats sin. And so when you are in that place of frustration, my husband isn't loving me like he's supposed to, or my wife isn't respecting me like she's supposed to, it's a willing sacrifice that defeats sin. Now, right, but are there limits? Right? Is there a point at which you say, no, my, my husband is so far from love and is actually abusive that I don't have to, that I'm no longer held by this and I'm not supposed to be a willing sacrifice? Or is there a point at which my wife lacks such gr- respect and grossly disrespects me that I'm excused in some sense? You know, for most of the history of the church, uh, the church read Romans 13, which calls for obedience to the civil authorities which God has put into place. For most of the history of the world, that was read, yeah, oh, the king, God put him there. And our obedience is owed to the king or to whatever leader, without exception. There's no, there's no qualifier clause in Romans 13. And then World War II happened. And Hitler happened. And the church had to say, is this really, are we called to serve this man without exception? And you had brilliant evangelicals like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who concluded no. That there comes a point when someone goes so far from uh, the rule of law and is so destructive to human well-being that it is God-honoring to oppose him even to the point of participating in an assassination attempt, which of course Bonhoeffer did. Are there exceptions? Certainly, right? If a husband is ridiculously physically abusive towards a woman, are you going to tell that woman, well, you need to respect him? Of course not. How do we draw a line in that? There's no line to be drawn. It's an issue of wisdom. It's an issue that requires a community. And we must labor together to encourage one another to love and respect as we're called to and to hold one another to account when we fail. There's no easy way to answer that question of when has a boundary been crossed and when is someone released from that. But we have to say that it exists because some in our midst, some in our, and people all around us are suffering horribly at the hands of destructive, abusive uh, men. And some men are suffering at the hands of women who 
um, not just mock their leadership by, for example, their incessant infidelity. And so we have to keep those things in mind. Now, before we move on, right, we're into trees a little bit. We're talking about husbands and wives. We're done with husbands and wives, but what you need to know as we move on is that what Paul has done is acknowledge the household code and then spend a lot of time focusing on the, the person in power and redefining that role of power. That's where he's had something radical to say. He moves on to children and parents. Right? He does the same thing. He affirms the household code. Children, obey your parents. Okay? No one suggesting that children shouldn't obey their parents. It's a ubiquitous commitment in all of Greco-Roman culture. Right? But he affirms this, and he reminds them that the Mosaic Law said it a long time ago. And boys and girls, Paul not only says that you should obey your mother and father, but this is the first commandment that actually has a promise attached to it, which uh, the promise that you will live long in the land is really a notion. The land meant that you were in good standing with God. So boys and girls, as you obey your mothers and fathers, you stay in good standing with God. They love you more than anyone else. And they are intentional, intended on your good more than anyone else. And to not take that seriously and to heed what they say is foolishness. Then Paul goes on to speak to fathers. Right Today we would say fathers and mothers, of course, but in a patriarchal society he didn't necessarily think or need to say that. And what is the role of you, parents, not to provoke your children? Right? If you are like me, sometimes you take great pleasure in provoking your children. We can be honest. Right? Little, little consternation to see them frustrated and run around in circles a little bit. Right? It's even more tempting when they're frustrating you. Oh, you're frustrating me? I've got more experience at this than you do. I will frustrate you. Right? Paul says no. It's not your role, and it doesn't help anything. Don't provoke your children to anger, but be intent on raising them in the fear and instruction and discipline of the Lord. So, fathers and mothers, as you make sure to sign up for every camp and every soccer program and make sure that your kids will be at the top of their class and go to the best college and rule the world, how much time and energy are you investing that they grow up knowing the fear and instruction and discipline of the Lord? When I uh, first interned, I was like Matt. I was in seminary, and I went to a church and became an intern there, and the pastor there was old. He was in his 70s. Uh, his name was Bill Crispin, and he was a great guy, full of wisdom and loved the Lord and just real gentle. But he had grown up in a stern Christian household, and he had totally walked away from the faith and only came back to it later in life. But as he was struggling in life, he said... Uh, I would be in these places where I had pursued my own desires and my own flesh and would be frustrated, and verses kept popping into my head. And he said, every week, every night, we were required to memorize the scriptures and to recite them over and over again. And Bill Crispin would say that I firmly believe that that's what God used to call me back to himself, that those scriptures never left me. And as I was flailing and had been far removed from my parents... It was the word of God that had been hidden in my heart in places I didn't even know that woke me up. To what extent are we expending the same kind of energy of running the rat race of our culture and raising our children in the fear and discipline of the Lord? Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6 tells us. Lastly, slaves and masters. Slaves, obey. Right? Again. 
Nothing really new there. Right? Slaves have been long expected to obey their masters. But then Paul goes on to say, in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Who is this guy? Nobody has any issue with threatening a slave. They're a slave. Stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Masters, remember, you're, you have a master. You are a slave. And so treat your slave with the same respect and dignity that Christ treats you. So what we see at the end of the household code that Paul has walked through, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, is that what he's done in each case is affirm the household code, and then he's challenged radically the person who exists in the more powerful place within the power structure. In a very artful way, Paul has, has written to the church in Ephesus, which is probably in trouble for, you know, uh, rocking the boat of culture, right? Just little things like men and women showing up to share it at the Lord's table together would have been a fairly radical idea, right? Men and women didn't worship together. So these things are happening. It rocks the boat, and Paul writes to the church in a letter that will be, will be shared and read, and he affirms the household codes, and then he radically undermines them saying that those people in positions of power within the household code should exercise their power in a manner of weakness, in a manner of humility, so that it serves the person who in that power relationship is considered to have less power. This is why in verse 21 and verse 33, I think the word fear exists. Because Paul knows exactly how scary this is. Right? Reverence doesn't come anywhere near to doing this justice. And it falls, I'm not suggesting that the notion is horror, but Paul is saying uh, that when you, do you understand the love of Christ? He's laid down his life that you might be made clean and holy and blameless. That you might be rescued. And he knows your filthiness and that degree of love is frightening. And that that degree of love is going to upend everything. The entire household code, which is the basis of society in the ancient world, is turned upside down. Because of the love of Christ. And that's why he can use fear in verse 33 too. It's because for a wife to be loved truly like Christ loves the church by her husband is a scary thing. It means wife, you can't remain as you are. You'll be utterly transformed by that love just as the church is transformed by Christ's love. So that we're called. And if we aspire to that, friends, if we came anywhere near to living out this passage, there would be lines out the door of wives who would want to be in here because they would want to know what's so unique about our marriages, right? Of families who want to know why our kids are ending up so great, right? And employers who want to know why we have people who work as if they're working for the risen Christ rather than for man. Let's pray.